0: I think the gospel is fundamentally offensive, and we should always expect it to be under attack if we are standing for Jesus. However, I think we have allowed an obstacle course of myths that we could dispel to build up almost in, in front of the stumbling block that is Christ for our, our friends to, to trip up on. And I think there are many things that Christians find themselves anxious about, on the defensive about, ashamed of believing, that actually really do stand up under serious scrutiny.
1: Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca holds a PhD in English literature from Cambridge University, studied theology at Oak Hill College in London, and co-founded Vocable Communications, a firm dedicated to helping leaders deliver messages that change minds. She's also the author of Confronting Christianity— 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion with Crossway. In our conversation today, Rebecca and I discuss an important question. Is Christianity on the decline? In doing so, she also addresses two of the most common charges against our faith, that it's anti-science and that it's homophobic. Let's get started. Rebecca, thank you for joining us on the Crossway podcast.
0: I'm excited to be here.
1: So 50 years ago, Sociologists predicted that the world would be much more secular by now than it actually is. And they predicted that religion would eventually be a thing of the past. But it it turns out that they they were wrong. They were very wrong. What happened?
0: It turns out that that actually didn't happen at all. That not only has religion not declined as prophesied, but actually it looks like there is going to be growth in the proportion of humanity identifying with a particular religion, even in the coming 40 years. Um, and part, you know, part of the story there is interestingly that religious people have more children than people who don't believe in God. And that's true in America as, uh, as well as being true in places like China, where there's been obviously some programmatic pressure on non-religious people to have fewer children but i think there are also real ways in which it's actually quite hard to maintain non-religious beliefs over multiple generations so i think there's a couple of multiple things at least going on uh, in in the picture here and it looks like as far as sociologists can now prophesy uh, out to roughly 2060 that by then the proportion of Christians in the world will have maintained almost exactly stable, actually grown slightly from 31 to 32% of the world identifying as Christian. That the proportion of Muslims will have shot up from about 24 to 31% to become a very close rival with Christianity, Uh, Buddhism and Hinduism to experience a marginal decline, a couple of percent each. And the proportion of people not identifying as religious is set to decline. From sixteen to thirteen percent, which is extremely surprising news to my contemporaries who grew up under what you might call the secularization hypothesis
1: yeah on that on that hypothesis, what was the meat of it? What were the the thinkers who predicted this uh, decline in religion? What were they saying was going to be the cause of that?
0: I think a range of factors, so people assumed that Increased education would lead to decreased religious belief. Turns out that's not true. And actually, interestingly, if you look at the history of education, Christianity has been an incredible driver of educational progress, ranging from essentially inventing the university to uh, evangelism globally, pouring fertilizer on global uh, education and literacy rates, because we are effectively people of the book. I think another piece of that is the idea that science is somehow incompatible with Christianity or has discredited Christianity. So, the more scientific people got, so the reasoning went, the less religious they would be. Again, this is a misconception. And if we look back at the history of science, it turns out that m- the modern scientific method was actually invented by Christians as well, not as an alternative hy- hypothesis to belief in a creator god, but because they believed in a creator god who was both rational and free. So I think there are many complex pieces that are woven into this picture, but a number of essentially myths actually about religion in general and Christianity in particular that led people to think that there was going to be a decline in, in religious belief. And at least at a global level, there hasn't been. Now, interestingly, your demographic, Matt, is the one demographic that is secularizing significantly, and that's that's white Western men. So we sometimes think of Christianity, or some people think of Christianity as a religion of white Western male privilege. In fact, Christianity is the greatest movement for diversity in all of history. And atheism in America is overrepresented by white men.
1: Yeah, that is that is fascinating. And I think thinking about those prominent uh, new atheists is how they're often referred to. Mm. These guys who kind of loom large in our the public consciousness about religion in America and uh, the supposed problems with religion, especially in the face of science. Uh, Some of these guys, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens. What is it that you think uh, contributed to their popularity in the face of the reality that you just sketched for us uh, in America?
0: So I take perhaps a slightly unorthodox view of the New Atheist Movement from a Christian perspective, which is that I don't think it was Entirely a bad thing. So I think the one service that Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris et al have done for us is shaking some people out of a cultural or nominal Christianity, which, to my mind, is actually a more dangerous place to be than knowing that you're not a Christian. And I think in in the US and uh, in the UK, but certainly here, the meat of the decline of religious belief as Reported in in surveys has actually been from people who are nominal or or significantly liberal Christians, rather than from the more sort of full blooded evangelical or sort of traditional Christians. The the acts that he and others wielded at the root of some kind of just not very well thought through conceptions of Christianity has been helpful actually in at least moving people forward in the conversation. Having said that, I think we uh, as Christians, we have bought into the idea that Christianity is anti-intellectual or at least limited in its intellectual range, when in fact it's the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. Discoveries made by Christian thinkers throughout the last 400 years of of modern science have been extraordinary and continue to this day, that even in many of the fields people think of as having discredited Christianity, there are literally world-class leaders who are scientists and very serious Christians? So I think we've we've taken a, an unnecessary and unhelpful step back from the academic world, and allowed the new atheist to unduly claim every academic and scientific victory for the cause of atheism. And actually, I think that's quite an illegitimate move.
1: So in your book, Confronting Christianity, you actually engage with twelve questions, uh, challenging questions that. Christians need to be prepared to answer in our world today.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: every one of them is, is fascinating, whether it's related to the exclusivity of our faith or how Christianity views women or the reality of hell. And one that we've already hit on briefly that seems perennially relevant is the question of whether or not science has disproved Christianity mm-hmm. or if not disproved it, you know, rendered it intellectually unnecessary. And I want to read this quote by Richard Dawkins. It's a famous quote that I think really captures the sentiment of some of these atheistic scientists. Uh, He writes, The universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Mm. What do you say to that?
0: Firstly, I would say that Richard Dawkins and... Other writers of his ilk often ask questions of science that science is not designed to answer for us. And that plays out in two directions. One is they sneak metaphysical claims into scientific statements. There's a whole other dimension that plays out where a new atheist author like Richard Dawkins will make these, these bold statements on the basis of science that there is a bottom in the universe, no evil, no good. Um, no justice, you know, these these sort of massive statements with huge ethical implications. And yet would argue that human beings should all be seen as innately and and equally valuable, uh, that men should be seen as equally valuable to women, that um, racism is wrong, et cetera, et cetera, that, that there should be this fundamental idea of universal human equality from which all sorts of other ethical uh, positions spring. And in fact, by their own lips, as it were, none of that is, is grounded in their beliefs. They, they typically have this sort of high uh, moral ideals that, that have essentially been inherited from Christianity. They've ripped out the idea of God from underneath those ideals and are claiming that atheism supports them better than Christianity ever did. And it's simply not true.
1: Yeah, it seems like on both sides of the issue, whether they're atheistic scientists or even some Christians, are responsible for painting a picture that science and faith can't go together. That um, as soon as they come into contact, it's almost like they cancel each other out or something like (laughs) that. And you have to kind of keep them separate. What do you think about that?
0: I think part of it is that on both sides, there can be this idea that the more we understand of science, the less room there is for God. And I don't think that's true at all. I think in fact, the more we understand of science, the more detail we see of how God has worked and operated. So I think sometimes we have this idea that sort of more science means less God. And that's not true. And uh, another analogy you could look at is, is the Bible where people will say, well, do you think the Bible was written by God or written by humans? And I'm like, well, <laughs> there's the funny thing with the Bible is that it's entirely written by humans and entirely inspired by God. So actually, you can't play those two things off against each other. It's it's both at the same time.
1: But hasn't that ex- been exactly what Christians have done? We've argued for a kind of God of the gaps where uh, whatever kind of scientific or whatever kind of phenomenon that we're observing that science can't yet describe or explain, we we see that as evidence for God. And then science comes along and starts to explain that phenomenon. And, gives us some, some measurable, testable, verifiable mm-hmm. uh, causes, and then that kind of pushes God out of the equation.
0: Yeah, so I think it's certainly the case that Christians have at times poorly defined their, their sense of the relationship between God and science, and that that has, has led us to some unfortunate situations where people have been arguing on the basis of you know one gap or another or one scientific hypothesis or another, um, for or against God, and I think that's something that we, you know, we need to re- reckon with, particularly in, in sort of contemporary Christianity in America. I think what's interesting, though, is that the new atheist story says time and again Christians have believed X, and then science has come and told them Y, and then Christians have had to revise hypothesis, you know, number one in light of science, and you know, atheism marches on what's interesting to me is something like the the big bang which was first dreamt up by a catholic priest uh, and was strongly resisted at the time by many atheist physicists because it implied that the universe had a beginning and there was a a common view at the time among scientists that actually the universe had, had always existed and that there'd been the sort of steady state rather than a a beginning sort of sudden explosion from, from a tiny nothing uh, into what we see now. And so today, I think even a number of Christians think of the big bang as you know another area in which science and Christianity are uh, you know, locked in mortal conflict um, and sort of undermining our sense of a creator when it was almost alarmingly close to the idea of God creating the universe out of nothing.
1: So another important question that you address in your book relates to Christians and sexuality. And you know, this topic could not be more relevant than it is today. in you know, the issue of sexuality and all of its shades and contours and preferences, it seems just to dominate the headlines, mm-hmm. it dominates pop culture, it even dominates our politics very often. Uh, and many claim that Christianity is really regressive when it comes to its views on gender and sexuality, Uh, How would you respond to that?
0: If the question is, are there Christians today who are homophobic in the in the technical sense of being hateful and judgmental toward people who are in gay and or lesbian relationships? Absolutely, yes. Right? You know, you and I, we don't need to make any bones about that. It's certainly the case that Christians have many times in the past, and certainly today, engaged in that kind of thinking and, and that kind of behavior. So, on on that level. Christians certainly can be and have been homophobic. However, if we're asking the question, is Christianity homophobic? And is there no place for people who um, are experience same-sex attraction within Christianity? I think the answer is absolutely not. What we tend to do is not go back far enough and not think big enough in terms of our theology. So we look at the Bible and we notice certain passages that seem to prohibit homosexual relationships of various sorts and if we just look at those passages and we don't see the big picture of what male and female means in the scriptures and what sex and marriage mean in the scriptures then they just seem like kind of random directives from the lord now as good christians you and i may may look at a ra- what's a seemingly random command from the lord and think okay i, I have no idea why that makes sense at all but I need to follow it and and, act on the basis that it's true. And that there's an extent to which that's right. But I actually think the scriptures give us a much more elevated and beautiful picture that once we understand that picture, what the Bible says about sex in in all its forms makes much more sense. My starting point in any conversation about sexuality at this point is to say, we cannot give a quote, biblical answer to the question why do I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman and that sex is only from a Christian perspective, but belongs within that marriage covenant? We cannot answer that question biblically without telling somebody the gospel, because the reason is so that human marriage can in some small way picture Jesus' sacrificial love for us. God has given us these different pictures of himself built into our very existence. But the third thing that I want to say, and I think this is a point being very well made by uh, Christian leaders such as um, Sam Albury from my own country. And that is that marriage is not the only picture we have in our lived experience of Jesus' love for us. So Jesus says to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Paul calls Christians one body. He calls us brothers and sisters. He calls us comrades in arms. He describes his friend Anisimus as his very heart. Uh, and he tells the Thessalonians that he was among them like a nursing mother with her children. So these, these almost embarrassingly intimate pictures of what it means for one Christian to love another Christian. Marriage pictures Jesus' exclusive love for us, but that we experience his inclusive love in friendship.
1: So as you reflect back on your own experiences with same-sex attraction, but also being a Christian and being uh, enmeshed in the church from a young age, are there things that, is there advice that you could offer other Christians who maybe don't struggle with same-sex attraction in terms of loving their brothers and sisters and even loving those who aren't Christians, but who are homosexual Mm -hmm. living in that lifestyle?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What advice would you give the church for engaging with people like that?
0: Mm, It's a great question. I think people of my generation who grew up Christian uh, and experiencing same-sex attraction often are carrying significant hurts and wounds and fears and anxieties. And I think the willingness of brothers and sisters to come alongside people in that situation, people like me, and just listen and just be willing to uh, not be freaked out by things and to be loving and open um, to people as they share their struggles is huge. I think for a long time, we have created church culture in a way such that it's much easier to confess a pornography addiction than same sex attraction. And I think that's a huge problem. On the other side of that, there is a real danger of what I have <laughs> sort of referred to at times as heterosexual guilt and what happens here is that um, straight christians who have grown up in the church and and had frankly kind of homophobic attitudes i.e. Uh, an unloving um sort of revolted unkind disparaging uh, approach to gay people outside the church or or inside the church who have sort of grown up with that what really is homophobia and i don't think simply opposing uh, gay marriage for christians is homophobic I, but i do think there is uh, there is a homophobia in terms of a fear and suspicion of, of people who are same sex attracted. I think what often happens is those folks recognize that in themselves and, and earnestly want to repent of it and want to start being empathetic and, and loving and appropriately Christian in their approach to their brothers and sisters in the church and to um, gay people outside the church. But then they throw out their theology with their homophobia. and. About the most unkind thing that you can do as a straight Christian to a Christian struggling with same-sex attraction is to cast doubt on whether the Bible actually says that same-sex marriage for Christians is not okay. In in doing that, you are cutting the legs out from under your brother or your sister's discipleship. And I think we've had too much of a them-and-us mentality up to this point which has played out in various directions, but it's meant that we've, we're kind of acting like we're only expecting same-sex attracted Christians to give things up for the gospel. And if that is true in our churches, we have some major discipleship problems. Like if I've had people say, oh, it's, I think it's just unfair that it's only same-sex attracted Christians who should be expected to sacrifice for the gospel. I'm like, yeah, it's unfair and it's unbiblical. All of us a call to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. And in the area of, of sexual desire and romantic love, few married people never find themselves attracted to someone they're not married to. Few single people never find themselves attracted to someone they're not married to. Often my friends who, you know, gay, straight, or otherwise at times find themselves intensely attracted to someone they are not in a covenant marriage relationship with. And so. At that point, they, they need to submit those attractions to Christ and deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. So I think we are, in meaningful ways, all in the same boat. And we've spent too long creating this sort of special category for same-sex versus other-sex attraction um, that can, you know, can lead us in, into sin. And I think, actually, we kind of all need to be a bit more real about the need for ongoing discipleship in this area. Um, and just kind of be shoulder to shoulder in that mission.
1: That's so helpful. So maybe last question to the Christian listening right now, who, when they, when they look out at culture and they just feel sort of under attack, they feel maybe a low grade shame at their beliefs, mm. whether it's their beliefs about sexuality or about science, uh, about God being the creator,
0: Mm. their
1: confidence in the Bible, this book that we've been given that reveals truth about who we are, who God is. And maybe it's something as simple as the resurrection that that someone came back to life. There are so many of these issues that I think it's easy for us to feel attacked in, Mm. to feel like we are backwards in terms of the broader culture. Mm. What Mm. encouragement or exhortation would you offer to Uh, the person who might be feeling like that right now?
0: I think the gospel is fundamentally offensive, and we must never lose sight of that. And we should always expect, in some sense, to be under attack if we are standing for Jesus. However, I think we have allowed an obstacle course of myths that we could dispel to build up almost in, in front of the stumbling block that it's Christ for our, our friends to, to trip up on. And I think there are many things that Christians find themselves anxious about, on the defensive about, ashamed of believing, et cetera, et cetera, that actually really do stand up under serious uh, academic scrutiny. So I, I guess a significant part of the reason I, I wrote this book was to Hopefully give you know, Christians a, a, an entry point to exploring some of these, these questions and, and relieving some of those anxieties, and then maybe to be able to give this book to a friend and say, "Hey, you know, what do you think that maybe this engages some of the questions that you have about Christianity?" So on the one hand, I would want to take burdens off the shoulders of those folks and say, "Actually, the cards are very much in our hands. There are so many ways in which we actually have far more cards on our hands than we, we often realize. At the same time, we should never expect witnessing for Christ to be easy. And if, if it always is, we're doing it wrong. Our, our metric for success should not be that we are always well received. In fact, Jesus was utterly rejected on many occasions. The first disciples were utterly reject, rejected on, on many occasions. The, the expectation we sometimes have that, our Christian beliefs should you know, fly just fine in contemporary culture, whatever culture we're, we're in and whenever our contemporary is, I think is at odds with the promise of the gospel, which is Jesus calling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. So I think on the one hand, I want to say brothers and sisters, let's get moving here. There is so much work to be done. There is an incredible opportunity before us to grasp. And in many ways, we need to go on the offensive evangelism-wise. At the same time, I would not want to say this is an easy life. That's not what Jesus promises us.
1: Rebecca, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Uh, There's so much more in your book that you discuss, other questions, other challenges to Christianity. We could only do a couple today, uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: It was great to be here, Matt. Thank you.
1: That was Rebecca McLaughlin discussing atheism, religion, and Christianity in our world today. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel through publishing gospel-centered, Bible-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.